You're listening to the Go For Growth Podcast with Doug Hall. Welcome to the Go For Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hall, and today I have a great interview with Jim Roddy, reseller business advisor at WorldPay, a global leader in payment processing. I invited Jim because his passion is helping business owners improve their results. He's well qualified because he's an experienced entrepreneur and business owner that sold his business and became the CEO of the acquirer. His day-to-day work is with people that own businesses in the point-of-sale tech market, but he actually helps them solve classic business challenges in the area of leadership, culture, management, and business improvement. The cool thing about Jim's position is he gets to see what's working and not working across many businesses across the country and around the world, and he shares success stories with the business partners. So today we have an opportunity to talk to Jim, hear about some successes and lessons learned. Here's the interview. Yeah, I've been doing this uh, Vantive Now World Pay business consulting thing for a little over two years now, and it's been going well. It's interesting just to, I want to say, stumble into some of these businesses, but they're not quite sure what to do, but they're looking to try to get some help. Um, and then just be able to dive in and, and help them out from that standpoint. And just a lot of different businesses, like I'm able, you know, even in this point of sale or, you know, this general world, you know, folks who focus solely on hardware or pharmacy POS, or I work with one guy who his focus is to build your own pottery or paint your own pottery um, market. And he put together niche solutions for them. So you never know what you're going to walk into, you know, like, uh, last week I was in London, Ontario, meeting with a group that has only seven employees, including the owner. And they're all based in one small office. And I was in St. Louis, the early part of the week with a group that has, uh, 75 employees. And a bunch of those are in the Philippines. That's their tier one support, um, salespeople all around the country. So I just get to deal with a lot of different groups, but they're still kind of in the same vein that they're not so radically different. Like I'm consulting a zoo and then a bank, you know, or something like that. So, uh, but it's been enjoyable, no doubt about it. Yeah. Are they, um, so I've always meant to ask you this, are they qualified or pre-qualified based on how heavy they use POS services or, you know, use um, card pay services or, you know, how do you filter them? Uh, so I always tell people, if you call me, I will answer the phone and I'm not going to hang up on you. So I've right. even had people who have nothing to do with world pay whatsoever, but they're looking to get a, get a better lay of the land of this industry. I'll have a call or a couple, you know, just general calls with them. Uh, I do tell folks you have to be a, an official world pay partner in order to get, you know, the workshops or the, you know, merchant survey that we do, stuff like that. The way sure. that it started off was just kind of catch as catch can. But this year, um, we shifted to having uh, folks make commitments as to what they were going to provide, you know, over and above what they did last year from a residual or um, uh, income standpoint or a number of merchants that they steered over to world pay standpoint. So they were classified as gold or platinum partners. So that just gave mm-hmm. me a list that I just went after. Um, mm-hmm. which is great. It was way better doing it that way than just scrambling and seeing who might be a fit. And you end up going like, oh, how much is this person really going to help our business? But these were all, not that other people were illegitimate, but these were all really legitimate uh, companies. A lot of them ISVs, um, not some of these, you know, three-person reseller 
organizations. So a little bit more sophisticated customer, a little bit bigger. And so that's where my focus has been uh, this past year. Does that answer your question? Perfect. Uh, yeah. So, so characterize WorldPay in the POS reseller world. Are you guys number one or are you, where, where is WorldPay now? Yeah, so WorldPay is number one globally because it used to be Vanta Van WorldPay and Vanta bought WorldPay and then kind of stole their name. Where mm -hmm. the roots are in the channel is there was a company called Mercury Payment Systems, and they were the first ones, this is about 15 years ago, to say, hey, instead of credit card processing being that separate, um, you remember how when you'd pay with a credit card, well, before they'd hand you a machine and do the knuckle buster, then they would hand you yep. a little terminal and you'd, you know, swipe your card yep. in there. Well, they said, yep. how about that's going to start to get integrated with a POS system. How about if we integrate with software developers and have them have it integrated in their software and offer us as the payment processor, and then resellers can sell that software, sell the hardware, sell the whole integrated thing, and resellers are going to get a cut of that action where the people who got the cut before were called ISOs. They went door yep. to door and said, I'll swap out your terminal. Yep. You'll get a better rate. But you can imagine the turnover for that was super high. Once it became what's called integrated payments, and it was sold by resellers, and they were getting a cut of it, it became a way stickier relationship because people weren't pulling out, you know, they wouldn't pull out the payment processing because it was integrated with their software. And so that's how Mercury became the king in the channel. Um, I'm guessing you're familiar with the whole Blue Ocean strategy thing. That was yep. a Blue Ocean back then now it couldn't be a more red ocean uh at this point where at the right. leading trade show retail now um mercury used to be the only one for a couple of years in this past year i think there were 29 payment processing companies there wow yeah so world pay is still number one but not the only one uh plus so, some payment companies are buying software developers and forcing other okay. payment processors out uh, that's a new development going on in this industry. So that's a vertical integration play that's going on. Uh, like, correct. Yeah. Lining, yeah. Lining up, buying, you know, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say they're they're lining up all key resources, so they're forcing the hands of of either merchants or sort of the resellers and the merchants to align with their preferred payment processor now. Exactly. Somebody it. had a great line. They told me one time where they said the two most effective marketing techniques in payment processing are lying and bribery. You know, they'll overpromise, <laughs> underdeliver, and then the bribery is, hey, we'll give you X amount more. This new one is uh, taking hostages. So that's essentially taking what they're hostages. doing is they're and they're putting a gun to the head of the merchant, the reseller. Um, and so we'll see how yep. it shakes out. I mean, WorldPay has not bought an IS, a software developer. They don't plan on doing that. They want to remain agnostic. Um, but we'll see how that all will shake out in time. Yeah. Good. So so roll it back. So WorldPay was Vantive, Vantive plus WorldPay. So take it all the way back to Mercury. How many acquisitions were in there or mergers? Oh, gosh. So Several. Several that I remember. So from a, yeah. So, yeah, so Vantive spun out from Fifth Third Bank. So Vantive bought, um, oh, I always forget their name now. They're an e-commerce company. They're up in Massachusetts. They weren't really big in the channel because they were e-commerce. Lytle is what they were called. They bought Lytle. Lytle. Then they bought okay. Element, which was based out of Arizona. Element was kind of a, um, 
competitor with Mercury. They came on the scene as well. So after they bought Element, then they bought Mercury, then they bought um, Moneris, uh, their mm-hmm. U.S. division, which had a big healthcare play with Henry Shine, and then the whole World Pay thing happened. Those are some of the pretty much the biggest ones in the path. Big ones that they are now. All right, so go back to t- a little over two years ago. What attracted you to this role? And, you know, play it back to your background. I know you were, you know, CEO in publishing and other sure. stuff. So your background was really from a different angle. And you parlayed it through time into a, a satisfying situation where you're working with business owners all the time now. I mean, that's uh, who you're yes, talking and to. I guess there's there's almost a more serendipitous story in terms of how I got into this business and this path of it. And this is why I'm a big fan of try things and just, you know, get out there and and see what happens because you don't know what's actually going to be on the other side. The way that I got into this industry was simply looking for cheap office space. So when I was 23 years old, I decided to start my own sports magazine. I'm in Northwest Pennsylvania. I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I only had $6,000 to start with. I didn't really know anything about business. Of course, I was only 23. And so I was looking for the absolute cheapest office space I could find that didn't have bugs or water on the floor is essentially what it was. So I found this uh, office park that was actually converted from a burial casing company. They were a casket manufacturer. And so they converted everything into small offices I got this office in the back. I mean, it had no windows. It was so far in the back of the building. If you went out the back door, you were on the railroad track. So it was that far <laughs> back. And it was maybe a 12 by 12. It had a uh, big fluorescent light hanging down. I'm like, oh, that's where I could do my layout. And, you know, I paid, you know, somewhere around 100 bucks a month uh, was the total rent, including utilities. But then serendipitously, uh, the only technology publisher in town and who thought there'd be a technology publisher in Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, right, exactly. Right, right. Not not exactly the epicenter of the IT world. You know, we always joke the Silicon Valley of the Rust Belt. Um, And uh, they happened to move into the front of the building. And because they were publishers and I was a publisher, um, I ended up meeting the owners. And after about five and a half years, I realized like, oh, you can only grow a sports mag- uh, sports magazine in Erie, Pennsylvania, so big, and I'm not going to be able to really sustain myself and uh, my family long-term. This is before the whole advent of the web and all that right. stuff. Um, yeah. I ended up jumping on board with them because they were looking for a managing editor. I worked there for 18 years. The last 11 is company president, and then just based on the relationships that I had in this uh, information technology channel, specifically the retail, hospitality, you know, grocery IT world, I ended up becoming a business consultant uh, based on my experience, um, helping grow the business and working and building a team, and then also working with a lot of other leading uh, IT businesses. Um, I was able to, you know, parlay that into what I'm doing today as a uh, business advisor for solution providers and software developers in this industry. Well, that's uh, uh, that's an amazing transition, uh, particularly starting at a hundred dollars a month. <laughs> I commend you. <laughs> <laughs> it was my uh, so, my delivery vehicle was a uh, 1992 Geo Prism uh, for my ooh. newspaper, and my monthly payment on that was 145 dollars. When when I went to upgrade to a truck, I of course went to my advertisers, and uh, 
the person said like, so what are your monthly payments now? I said, 145 a month. He looked up at me and said, that's un-American. Uh, so yeah, I definitely uh, was definitely bootstrapping it, uh, you know, for five and a half years. Learned a lot that way though. I'll say that. I feel like I got a, uh, a free master's degree, you know, where I had no debt coming out of that. Oh, that's amazing. And publishing's tough business, always has been. No question about it. So I, I commend have been you on that. Certainly Continues got tougher to after the 08 recession, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about the channel participants that you're meeting with and consulting and you're sharing from your business, deep business experience, and you know, both bootstrapping, doing your own thing, and, and working in a growing publishing concern, uh, what what value do the owners get from your conversation and your your advice to them? What what do you see lighting up in their eyes? What tends to resonate with them the most? Sure, that's a, a good question. That's something that I think I ask myself every time I hop on the phone. Like, what value am I going to be able to provide here? Um, the one thing I say is. Uh, so don't take this out of context, but in business, cheating is legal. Uh, and I say that not mm. from a tax standpoint. I say that from comparing with school. Like in school, if you wanted to look off somebody else's paper, right? If you went to a Catholic school, the nun would be, you know, wrapping you on the knuckles with a, uh, yep. a ruler. So you couldn't look cheating off somebody else's good. paper. Exactly. But in business, if you go and ask somebody, can I see your answers? Can I see what you're doing? Can I learn from you? The answer is... Yes, and people open up their doors and they'll have uh, conversations with you on that. But maybe school kind of beat it out of us, uh, literally or figuratively, where folks don't look to see what other people are doing. And so my role is, I stole this phrase from someone else, I can't remember who it was, listening to a podcast like this, and it was, I mobilize the expertise of others. So I don't walk in and say, you know what I would do in this situation? I do bring some of my own experience that helps me run, run ideas through the filter in terms of what would impact the real world or not. But while the people who I work with, those businesses, they're spending all their time focused on their customers or with their team members, I'm spending time looking at businesses similarly situated to them, seeing what the leaders do, seeing what the laggards do, and then I'm just able to share that with them in terms of you can do whatever you want, but I'm just telling you because I talk with so many businesses like yours every week, and I've talked with dozens, if not you know, a few hundred over the past few years, getting a little bit deeper into their business. I can tell you the trend that I'm seeing what folks are doing. So that's where I think I, I give them a little broader view and give them the opportunity to look through a periscope instead of just focused on you know, what's under the water in their business have that periscope and then give them a much broader view without them having to talk to, you know, 50 people in their industry. I'm the one doing the legwork and I kind of consolidate that and share it with them in terms of what, what works for them. So that, that's kind of the, the main thing where I said, I, I actually have it hanging up on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. I mobilize the expertise of others. Right. So you're, you're kind of like the bumblebee flitzing around cross-pollinating. Uh, in some ways, yes. Yes. Somebody said like trying to inject a certain uh, level of DNA into different organizations, whether that's from a strategic standpoint, a principal standpoint, a best practices standpoint, or a training standpoint. I am finding out what is working 
inside some of these organizations and those who are interested um, can inject that DNA uh, into their business as well, their choice. Right. So you just opened an interesting question for me. Unpack those four or five elements a little bit and tell me to what degree, what percentage of the time do you get those different concepts, whether it's principles or best practices, what, what comes up the most, both when you're meeting people or when you're cross-pollinating and sharing? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. There is a real thing in the SMB world um, where businesses aren't necessarily, I'll use the word sophisticated. I hope folks don't take that the wrong way, but I've had that word said back to me at times where some of these small businesses feel that they are not sophisticated. So when you are an organization that is of a certain size, 5, 10, 15, you know, 20 people at that size, you only run into so many situations in your business. But once you're running right. an enterprise that gets to, I call it an enterprise, you know, for if you're running a larger company, you kind of laugh and go, 50 people, that's not that many. But once you're getting into that realm of having 50 people, just the shape of your business changes drastically, where if you're at the top of that, I don't want to say you're not necessarily not doing anything, but you're really pushing things through other people or else nobody's really running the business uh, itself. And so I run, <clears throat> excuse me, I've run into some of these smaller organizations that just haven't taken the time to really think about their business model, haven't thought about general principles of the best practices for running their business or what's really their future five to 10 years from now. And I don't fault them for it. When I was, when I was a small business, you know, somebody laughs about, oh my gosh, I can't believe this business doesn't do financial reports. When I was self-employed, I just did everything out of my checkbook. I mean, I didn't sure. know any better. So, and, and I was working all the time. So how would I have the chance to, to learn other things. So that's what I think I run into is this uh, lack of sophistication where folks haven't considered building systems inside their organization. Some of them, these are IT service providers, they are preaching to their customers about how you have to automate, how you have to streamline, how you have to reduce friction inside of your business. And then you look inside of their own business and they're running very inefficiently just because they've always done it. Um, yeah. that way. So I just see a lot of folks who don't take the time to retool their business. And again, I don't blame them for it, but you just really have to get that discipline inside of your business to say, I have to spend X amount of time, whether it's per week, per month, or whatever, working on my business and figuring out what things can I do better? How can I sharpen the saw instead of always just trying to cut down these trees with a, a dull blade? Yeah, great, great analogy. Uh, so when you're with those smaller firms in that small, medium business size, you know, sort of below 25 employees, is, is the message resonating? Are the light bulbs coming on or are people just sort of taking it as the as encouragement? And then, yeah, we're going to get to that later. What, what do you most often hear? Uh, that's a good question. So there's not a one size fits all answer uh, for sure. I would say the folks who I'm engaging with regularly are the ones who are really eager to move their business forward. If they're not okay. as eager to move their business forward, they'll just either stop returning calls or push things off or just say not at this time. So there are some folks, like I won't name names on here, but I check sure. in with them every 30, 60, you know, or 90 days. And between calls, 
a small percent of them just say, ooh, got busy, never made any progress. But I'd say a lot of folks are, hey, I didn't do exactly what we talked about last time, but I threw myself in the middle of it. I learned this along the way. I adjusted a little bit, but here's why I've moved forward. Here's what I've learned from it. Here's kind of the next thing that I did, and here's kind of the next thing that I'm thinking of. So there are a lot of times I'm pleasantly surprised where I go to get updates and folks are making significant strides. I'll give you an example. Work with a, uh, a software developer out in the um, uh, western part of the uh, United States, and he was talking about, I really need a salesperson to expand my business. And it seemed like the appropriate thing to do. They're doing a lot with word of mouth. He wanted to add a second salesperson. And so he had this guy with a lot of experience who he had known, and he had been begging the person to come on board for several months. And the person was like, hmm, I don't know, not quite sure. And so I said to him, you know, wouldn't you really rather have somebody who might not have this person's skills and experience, but who really had the passion to work for your business? You know, I learned from, this is actually from a high school basketball coach who didn't do any recruiting. And he said, if I'm going to beg the kid to come to my school, I'm going to beg him to come to practice. I'm going to beg him to work hard. I'm, I'm not a beggar. And so I just shared with him, like, why don't you get somebody who's got this engine to really want to work for you? And he said, huh, I never really thought of it that way. Well, I checked back in with him two months later and he's like, I hired somebody with a ton of passion after we had that call. There's somebody who I knew. She said she had been interested, but she was in a completely different industry. But once we got down, I said, I'd take her out to dinner. Turned out to be a four hour long thing. And so we got somebody who's a real engine inside of his business. So that's like a specific example of somebody who just says, you know what, that's true. I never thought of it that way. And I am going for it. And so that, that fires me up because in a good way, uh, because there is that entrepreneurial spirit, not just to start a company, but to really expand and, and grow and, and better the organization. So I, I run into that a lot. And that's why I think I keep coming back in uh, every morning to, to be invigorated like that and see some of these folks really rekindling their entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, that that's a great story because you, you provided direct value. He took your advice, executed and got a great person on board instead of an eh person. Right. And the person he brought on board didn't have the experience, didn't quite have the skills, but you'd rather have somebody who's got the heart and the, the fire in the belly is what we used to call it. I'm, I'm going back, you know, almost 25 years, you know, describing yep. that, but that's what you'd rather have. And so those are just, like I said, some of those general principles I'm able to share with somebody who never really thought of it. They thought I hire based on the resume. What else is there to hire? Uh, based on, but it's really what's inside the person. Perfect. Love that advice. That's that's awesome. So what kind of uh, advice do you generally uh, spread around and stories that you take from one partner to another uh, regarding management versus leadership? Is that a is that a topic that comes up some like because you mentioned, you know, they might be doing everything at 10 or 11 or 12 employees the owner manager yeah. is sort of call, calling all the shots, right? So, so yeah. tell me a little bit about some of those stories. Uh, yeah, so they, they know when I'm talking to them that they're doing too many things inside of their business where they are the top salesperson, right? They are the top customer service yep. person because they kind of built up that business. They've got to watch the finances as well. They tend to be, because they've been there the longest and they go to the trade shows, they know from a technology standpoint. So they know that they're in 
that spot that they're doing too much and they need to teach other people. But again, going back to the to that sophistication thing, teaching is way different than starting a business and running a business. Like it's a completely different mode. And so um, I have a lot of specific conversations about delegation. I actually worked with somebody who I hired and they taught me the uh, six words that have the three steps of delegation. I do, we do, you do. Like I do it well myself, we do it together, and then you do it, I watch you do it well. And the joke is always, if you don't do, I do, we do, you do, you end up in doo-doo. doo-doo. Um, and, and so uh, we do, I do some coaching based on not just saying, yeah, you should delegate. And they're like, where do I start? Um, but we talk about the concept of there's no substitute for a competent manager getting closer to a situation. So get close to it, teach the person, but don't do it for them. Uh, manage their expectations make it clear what they're responsible for and have regular weekly meetings where the job is you handing it off to the person or them watching you or you teaching them. You kind of have a list of things they need to get competent at and you're talking every week about, are they getting competent at that? What things are you going to focus on? What steps are they going to take in the next week? Mm -hmm. What steps are they going to take with you in the next week in order to, to build that up? And it's not magic by any means, but it really takes a focus and a discipline to do that. And so that's part of where I check in with them in terms of, so how is that handoff going to that new, whether it's salesperson or technician or somebody to run operations or, or something of that nature. So that's a, a regular conversation that we have is, it's not like a light switch where they're just going to switch and suddenly the person is someone you can hand things off to. Um, but we do the you know, fundamental making sure they stay disciplined and kind of act as their coach, you know, just like making sure they're staying on their diet and working out five times a week. Um, we make sure that they're, they're doing those things to make sure they're actually building a business underneath them. So they actually have something to sell. So when they walk away from the business or sell it or hand it off to somebody else, there's actually a business there as opposed to the owner leaves and, and the lifeblood is completely gone. So that's kind of an example of of one of the things that we do where we get down to a strategic, you know, you've got to delegate and then how do we actually make that happen? So that's, uh, that's excellent. You made me think of two things there. Number one, you're delivering ongoing value in the relationship to this targeted set of folks that you're calling and working with every month or two or three, right? That's ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're building business relationship and value for them to be loyal to world, world world pay. But on the other hand, you're giving them value, not just the service. You're giving them consulting value, right? I Correct. They are, I work with all world pay partners. And while a lot of times folks have said, this just seems like it's completely out of the goodness of your heart. And to a degree it is like, I'm not charging this to people. If you're a strong world pay partner, you get, uh, you know, you get this for free, but because we do everything through our partners, the stronger our partners are, the stronger our business is going to be as well. So like I said, I'm, that, that's, you know, kind of the longer term thing for this. Yes. But it's, it's more on a reciprocity basis. Like it's good for you. It's good for them. And then ultimately it's good for world pay. Uh, correct. There is not some smoking gun. I said this and your sales went up like this. It's really building no. that foundation and things are going to keep them healthier uh, in the long run. All right. So healthier in the long run, you got me thinking along the lines of you said a sellable business. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you see in 
the POS reseller channel, what's holding them back from building value and being more sellable, and what do you most often help them with to help them increase their sellability index, if you will? Sure, sure. good question. An interesting thing about the point-of-sale industry is uh, a lot of folks are second and third generation, and so their father or their grandfather started the business, and I'm not saying that to, um, you know, I would say their mother or their grandmother, but this has all been basically, you know, a male-dominated business. We're starting to see some daughters yep. into it as well, but that's just the reality of it. So um, one thing is they've never thought of selling their business or really building up the value of their business in case they're getting a spot where they want to or need to sell the business. So that's first getting the mindset change in terms of let's talk about business valuation because before it was, what do I care? I'm giving this to my kid. You know, we're not talking about somebody from the outside uh, coming in here. So um, that's one thing is getting them to understand the the business valuation uh, aspect of it. Um, and then the right. second thing is really them going to work on in two areas. One is having an operational foundation. So they're not just the magician who makes everything work because if they're going to sell their business um, or at some point they are going to retire, um, and God is on an undefeated streak of everybody dies uh, as well. Yep. I don't think that streak's coming to an end anytime soon, so they have to be ready for that. So we talk about building up something from an operational standpoint so the business can run without their constant intervention, and then bridging in with that is auto automation, as many things as they can automate in their business as opposed to manual they should do, and then that moves into them providing uh, products and services on a recurring revenue basis where instead of making a big sale up front and celebrating, you know, that big ticket item, that doesn't necessarily build up the value of their business as much as having an ongoing every month recurring revenue arrangement with dozens or hundreds of uh, paying customers. And so they have to, as one uh, reseller told me, um, he said, I used to be a sprinter, but now I'm a marathon runner. So I used to get as much as I could in that upfront uh, sale. And then once I was done, I'm like, whew, let me move on and find the next one. He said, now I'm a marathon runner. I'm just looking to get in the door, get some residual started, add another recurring revenue product, add another recurring revenue product, and then eventually build that up. So they're really looking for the long-term success. And again, just like a sprinter trains completely differently than a long-distance runner and physically is built a different from a long distance runner, right? These sprinters are all these really muscular guys, a long distance runners are really lean. Um, their business has to act accordingly and change uh, accordingly to that. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but that's kind of the, the world no, in which we are, dive into these businesses. That, that's perfect because you talked about mindset changes. You talked about, you know, family transition to the next generation might turn into selling it to private equity or something else. So there's none of us can beat death. We know that automation is always good. Getting an operations plan without the owner having to do everything is magic. And then this whole thing about recurring revenue, that's, that's a big deal in the IT and POS space. Going from that one shot sale or project oriented pricing to a monthly service fee. So that, how's the POS channel adjusting to that? What's what's the adoption rate there now in your estimation? Uh, it's getting considerably better. Uh, one of the stories that I tell is 
at Retail Now, which is the biggest uh, show, draws about 2,000 folks in this uh, POS channel industry. Um, it was probably, I'm going to get my dates exactly wrong, but close enough, uh, five years ago where okay. probably seven years ago, people started talking about recurring revenue because of what Mercury brought, you know, which was then purchased by WorldPay, Mercury Payment Systems. That was the first introduction to recurring revenue. And so, but that's where POS resellers thought it started and ended. It was all in payment processing. As we had right. some resellers adopting the managed services business model and talking about how you can wrap services around the point of sale and make more recurring revenue from that, I'll never forget, there was a presentation given and one older reseller got up to the microphone and just said, this will never work. Reach out this before. This will never work. And so you had people like they didn't even recognize it and they didn't see how it would work. And now we have uh, most resellers, I would say, uh, of the more sophisticated ones are really scrambling to build up as much recurring revenue as they can. That's been the major topic at retail now. And at the uh, winter conference, RSPA Inspire, recurring revenue is a huge topic there. And starting to see folks make a lot of gains. Uh, there was a holdup for a while where because this uh, industry is so hardware centric, you know, with the whole point of sale, you know, yeah. system and the all in one and the receipt printers and cash drawers and all that stuff, the vendors and the distributors weren't quite set up to provide point of sale as a service. But now they are, and they have been for the past three years, and now the software developers are providing that as well. So uh, there are folks now to finance that, and so we're starting to see it move in a more significant fashion. I do a um, point-of-sale channel KPI study every year, so key performance indicators, and I have a chart that basically has on the left side resellers who consider themselves 85 to 100% transition, where 85 to 100% of their revenue is recurring, and then folks on all the way on the right who are closer to 0%. And so I just have that chart, and you can see how most everybody three years ago was on that right side of the chart, you know, under 50%. And now we're seeing a big migration, and most people are sitting at or above 50% of their uh, revenue is uh, recurring revenue base. So we're starting to see a faster march, and I think a lot of folks expected in this industry, but it hasn't just happened serendipitously. This has been something that I can say I personally, the distributors, uh, the press, the, the folks who I mobilize the expertise of others, they've been very, very loud on you've got to shift to the recurring revenue business model. So I'm happy to see folks do it, but the reality is not everyone's going to be able to make it. I was just telling somebody this morning, a longtime reseller, I couldn't come up with a perfect analogy, but the best one I could is, you know, for a horse race, there's only X amount of stalls there, right? For the Kentucky Derby, there's like 18 stalls, mm. let's say. Mm. Well, the first 18 horses in there are going to get to go. If you don't get in there, you're not going to be in there. So there's yep. going to be limited, I think, market, um, you know, for who can sell more of these services to some of the larger, uh, you know, multi-unit uh, merchants. And that is where I think the big race is. Uh, right now. So being able to provide more sophisticated services that'll help you stay up market because the uh, mom and pop are going up against the, um, you know, the tablet point of sale systems that you can, that don't need to be very yeah. sophisticated. Yeah. And there's been big incursions from Square and those other guys into that space. So Correct. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Big, big challenge. So uh, if you step back and think about 
sort of the last month of interactions uh, and <clears throat> concepts, principles, best practices you've shared with business owners. What's your favorite sort of number one area piece of advice? I mean, what do you, if you just had to share one thing with an audience, what, what do you think has the most impact and share it with us? Uh, so I'll speak to two different audiences because that's what I think I speak to, where I speak to the executives. And then when I do okay. these workshops, I speak to the team members, um, you know, who aren't the owners. Uh, and so to the team members, the biggest thing is actually care. Like that story I told about the passion. It's not, mm. it's not that folks don't care, but a lot of times, you know, folks complain about, oh, you know, these customers and this customer is a headache and something like that. But what those folks need to realize is when they're calling and complaining to you, that is a better option than them calling up and complaining to your competitor and saying, why don't you come in here and replace them? So the foundation of every single customer service technique or trick or all these other things that you read about and know about, if you don't genuinely care about your customers and wanting them to succeed, then all this other stuff doesn't matter. Like that is it. And so that's where I said, I talk to the teams more about that. I don't have to talk to the owners about that because they care deeply about their business and about their customers. And I mean, I have one who's uh, super successful. Every single customer has his uh, cell phone number. So mm -hmm. he knows he wants his team to take care of stuff. But if they're ever in a spot, like he will on a Sunday run over a new piece of hardware if they need it, just because, hey, I really, you know, care about this person as opposed to, um, you know, anything else. So that's one thing that I would say is you've got to make sure that you're, you know, for the team, you've got to make sure you have people who really genuinely care, teach them to care or go find somebody who's going to care. So that's what I'd say to that one audience. The executive audience, to me, the biggest thing is having the humility where even though you've been working at this 70 hours a week, you've been working at it for years and nobody knows your business like you do, that doesn't mean that you have all the right answers as well. And so, you know, where I run into folks who feel like they're on the right path because they're working hard, um, but nobody pays necessarily for your hard work. They're paying for the outcome. So the successful folks mm -hmm. I see are the ones who have the humility to say, I will go to trade shows because I believe I can learn something, even though I've been at this for 10, 20, 30 years. I know I can learn there. I know I can learn from books. I know I can learn from other people. And I know I can learn from podcasts, from webinars. Um, and so, you know, there's humility thing. The, the crass way to say it would be get over yourself. Like, don't think mm -hmm. like you have all the answers. And I firmly believe that with that business, this business that I'm running uh, here, this division for world pay uh, that I'm doing, I certainly, I tell people it's not predicated on the fact that Jimmy's a genius. Like, I don't think I have all the answers, but I'm constantly searching for what other folks are doing. And that's what I think a lot of these small business owners need to do is, I mentioned earlier, looking through that periscope. You've got to make sure you're not always just focused head down on your business. You've got to have the humility to say, I might be missing something here. There's probably somebody who's doing something better than me. I'm sure there's a better way to do this. And so you've got to make sure you take that time and say, I'm going to go learn uh, from somebody else. Now, if you get 100 units of information, only three of them might apply to your business as a better way to do it, but you're better off having those three 
and applying them to your oh. business than getting the zero. And then the next quarter, you're going to get three more, next quarter, four more. And, mm. and you know, who knows what, what you're going to run into. So that, that I'd say is the general, you know, best practice advice of me learning from the leaders and observing the leaders in this industry. That's what they do. The ones who have teams top to bottom who are really passionate about their customers and the business, they are the ones who really advance. And then the leaders of the business uh, who are always looking for how they could do better and taking notes from talking with other folks and applying that to their business, they're the ones who continue to grow and continue to increase their profits, their recurring revenue, and actually lessen their headaches in the long run. Great advice. Um, so folks that are listening to this may want to get a hold of you to learn about what you do, what WorldPay can do for them, or just to get in touch. So what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, sure. Easiest way is via email. Um, and my email address is jim.roddy at worldpay.com. So J-I-M dot R-O-D-D-Y at WorldPay, all one word, W-O-R-L-D-P-A-Y dot com. Uh, I'll also give you my phone number. Um, I don't mind folks calling me as well. I always say, even if you're not a customer, I'm not going to hang up on you. Uh, and that number is 814-520-6342. Again, 814-520-6342. I'm always happy to talk to any business person, even from any vertical because I always feel like there's something that you can learn for someone else. I'm fired up because basketball season is starting right now. I go watch my uh, alma mater, um, Gannon University here in Erie, and I always make sure I sit uh, right next to or behind the opponent's bench and see what I can learn from those uh, coaches as well, either what to do or what not to do from a management standpoint. So all sorts of learning opportunities. So if someone picks up the phone and calls me, I'd be happy to share what I know, what I've learned by mobilizing the expertise of others, and I'd be more than happy to learn from you as well. Oh, that's fabulous, Jim. Thanks. I appreciate your time today. This has been an awesome uh, conversation and lots of nuggets in there for people to extract. And thanks for generously sharing your contact info and offering to talk to folks. So thanks very much. No, happy to do it. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Doug. The Go for Growth podcast is sponsored by Resources for CEOs. We help overworked business owners take back control of their time, build a team-driven company, and multiply profits. Get your free copy of How to Get What You Want from Your Business at resourcesforceos.com slash guide.